Good afternoon, my conscious co-creators. Welcome to another edition of the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. I am very, very pleased that you are here with me again today. Ooh, we got a, quite an interesting show in store for you, a real esoteric one. We haven't had one for a while, so uh, I thought this would be an interesting guest for us today. Of course, first we have our quotes of the day from the universe and from Abraham. Let's see what the universe and Abraham have in store for us today. First, from the universe, the wiser the soul, the greater the simplicity in everything. The universe. Ooh, a very simple, <laughs> short and sweet quote from the universe today. I think uh, sort of reminding us, uh, kind of Occam's razor in a, in a sense, but that, you know, with wisdom, we kind of see the simplicity in things. That sometimes, you know, we t our minds tend to overcomplicate things. And when we really think deeply about something and we, we've had the experience and we know ourselves well, that actually sometimes that simple solution can be uh, the, the most elegant, can be uh, the thing that really strikes at the heart and nature of, of what we're thinking about. Um, of course, sometimes things are complicated, but, but sometimes, you know, when it comes to just life in general, things are much simpler than we give them credit for. Ah, nice little simple quote from the universe. Wonderful. Thank you, Mike Dooley. All right, let's see what Abraham has in store for us today. The universe is not punishing you or blessing you. The universe is responding to the vibrational attitude that you are emitting. The more joyful you are, the more well-being flows to you, and you get to choose the details of how it flows. Abraham. And this is uh, a very simple <laughs> quote from Abraham. Uh, and this is, you know, one where, you know, sometimes, and I get it, sometimes it feels like the whole world is against you. Sometimes it feels like everything is, is not working out right and you think the universe is punishing you. Oh, the universe is doing this to me because I did this or I did that. And what Abraham is saying is that, you know, the universe, it doesn't work like that. That it's not about it rewarding you or punishing you. It's not because you do good, th good deeds you get good stuff and it's not because you do bad deeds you get bad stuff. No, what the universe is doing is it is responding to our vibrational nature. It's responding to the frequency that we're really putting out. However, having said that, you know, when we do something wrong, at least those of us with a conscience, we feel bad about it. So what is the universe going to do? It's going to respond to us feeling bad about what we just did. So what's going to happen when we're putting out this feeling that we feel bad about something? Probably something not so good to us. And so we think, oh, that's the universe punishing us. No, it's not punishing us it's just responding to how we feel about ourselves it's responding to what we put out there conversely right when we feel good about ourselves when we do something that you know we help another person we do something that's in service to other people then we're we're feeling good about ourselves we're putting out good vibrations about stuff then the universe responds in kind. Then what happens is good stuff comes back to us. So it's not like this, uh, uh, you know, this vision we have of this old man with a long white beard looking and judging all of our deeds and good and bad and oh, and this, this bad deeds and bad stuff's going to happen. The good deeds, good stuff's going to happen. No, it all comes down to us. It all comes down to what we put out energetically, vibrationally, whatever phrase you want to use, whatever we put out, like those are the seeds we're sowing. Those are the, 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 the energetic plants we're planting. And what is eventually going to happen? Those plants, those seeds are going to sprout. They're going to grow. And then we get to reap the fruits of those plants, regardless of what kinds of seeds this the type of seeds will determine the type of fruit that it bears um so uh, i think a very interesting quote from abraham too actually very simple quotes and very elegant quotes um you know to remind us that you know things in life don't have to necessarily be so difficult so complicated so convoluted 
Um, there is that doesn't mean that there's not a richness uh, to life. Um, it just means that uh, sometimes those simple things can have the deepest meaning. So two rather interesting quotes today and two quotes that uh, lead us into uh, a very interesting guest today. And this is somebody who I actually sought out. I saw some interesting posts by her on Facebook and took a look at her website. I thought, hmm, this is an interesting person. I'd be interesting to have her on the show. So it is my pleasure now to welcome Tracy Twyman, oh, I hope I said that right, who is an American nonfiction esoteric history author. Some of her well-known books include Clock Shavings, The Merovingian Mythos, Solomon's Treasure, and Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. Her latest book is Baphomet, The The Temple Mystery Unveiled, which is co-written with Alexander Rivera of TheIonEye.com. Before writing books, she made a name for herself as the editor and publisher of the highly unique magazine entitled Dagobert's Revenge. Ooh, i got to find out about that. She has appeared on several radio shows, television shows, and documentaries, including National Geographic's Is It Real? Da Vinci's Code, Jesse Ventura's Conspiracy Theory, and the documentary film Bloodline. She has appeared repeatedly on Coast to Coast AM and Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis, as well as many other programs. And we're very happy that uh, she's with us today on the Conscious Consultant Hour. Welcome to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Tracy. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And it's interesting you opened with Abraham today. I'm familiar with you know, the work of Abraham, uh-huh. um, I, for some reason, decided to look into what Abraham was doing recently for the first time in years. I looked Abraham up today just to see, you know, what sort of videos there were on YouTube. So it's yeah. funny you bring it up. Yeah, yeah. And and it's very interesting how the quotes that I get, you know, they come to my inbox, you know, every day and I don't cherry pick them. Like these are just the quotes that came today. And somehow the quotes are like so apropos for whatever the topic happens to be that day. So uh, I, I just thought they're I always laugh to myself when 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 I get them. Um, so, uh, Tracy, I'm curious just for our audience who's not familiar with you. Uh, it'd be nice to have a little background about how you um, became a well-known author and what kind of drew you to sort of these esoteric topics? Was this something that you were always interested in from when you were a kid or a teenager or was this something that kind of happened in your life that pulled you in this direction? Yeah, it's something I've always been interested in. Um, When I was a teenager, I worked for the newspaper at the college I was going to and uh, I used to write about conspiracy theories, so that's kind of how I first learned about, ah. you know, um, sort of the esoteric side of politics. And um, also around the same time, I was getting into, you know, magic, uh, occultism, I guess, uh, mostly through Lovecraft and Aleister oh. Crowley. And uh, then um, the Golden Dawn. Yes. Later on, it's like uh, I, I figured out those two sort of go together, especially when I learned about the alleged Masonic conspiracy. So I just sort of got obsessed mm. with it. I started that magazine you mentioned, Dago Bear's Revenge, and I mm. did that for several years. And eventually I went on to write books. Wow. So I'm curious, uh, Dagobert's Revenge, what kind of a magazine was that? Well, it was all about the topic that people are a bit more familiar with now, but um, the subject of the Da Vinci Code novel was all about uh, this idea that there's a secret society um, that's sort of quasi-Masonic and dedicated to uh, preserving and protecting this bloodline that they said uh, was descended from Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And then there's the uh, sort of hints in their literature, in the, the organization I'm talking about is the Priory of Zion. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. hints in their literature that the bloodline goes back even further, perhaps to fallen angels and other mm. sort of superhuman creatures. So I literally had a magazine that was all about that. Ah. And uh, uh, why did you call so it very unique at the time? So that's sort of how I made yeah. a name for myself. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I came across a lot of that stuff back when I was in college. Uh, a friend of mine showed me this book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail by Lincoln and Bejan. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one that got me started. Yeah. OK. Uh, where does the name Dagobert come from? Because, you know, I always Dagobert. think of Dagobert, I think of the dog in the um, the comic line. I, uh, 
The Dogbert, yeah. Dogbert, okay. right. Uh, well, actually, there's another Dagobert, too. If you lived in Europe, you would think of Scrooge McDuck as Dagobert Duck. Ah, That's what they call him over there. Yes. But anyway, uh, Dagobert was the last sort of effective Merovingian king. And the Merovingians were this bloodline I'm talking about. They were the kings of France. Right. Uh, and Dagobert II was the last effective king. There were other kings after him, but he was the last one that had any real power uh, he was assassinated, and um, a lot of people think that it was sort of a Vatican conspiracy, or the Vatican didn't even exist back then, really, but hmm. it was a church conspiracy. Got you, got you, yeah, yeah. And the Merovingians, um, for those people who are not as familiar with them, like they say like the, the Merovingians were kind of the, the, the source of, of the legend of King Arthur, right? This whole idea of, of Merlin and, and King Arthur came from the, the tales about the Merovingians, right? There's definitely some people that theorize that. I think that the Merovingians were one of several families uh, that were being represented by that story. But, yeah, there's, mm. um, basically there's a collection of families. And th- what we're talking about is really all the, uh, the royal bloodlines that have been in power throughout the history of Europe. Right. Uh, all of those families, they're all related to each other. And when you look at the sort of mythologies that are um, you know, passed down through the generations ar- about these families. Uh, they say about themselves, really, that they come from something superhuman. So uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene is the, the theory that kind of became popularized. I think the heritage of this is much older. Ah, I see. I see. You think uh, going back to like um, Egyptian times or older than Egyptian times? Well, the idea is basically that um, a whole, the whole notion of royalty really comes from this idea. When you look at almost all the ancient cultures, they all have these sort of stories about where their kings came from. And going back to Sumeria, you know, the oldest, right. really, civilization, um, they say that their kings are demigods, that they came from a bloodline that's descended from heaven somehow. Right. In Judeo-Christian lore, we have this story about the angels that came down from heaven and mated with humans. Right. And, uh, and, of course, it's portrayed negatively in the Bible, but uh, they also talked about the descendants of those people being, they say giants, but also right. uh, men of renown. And so mm. what that connects to is all the other stories from all, all the other cultures where they celebrate this heritage of, of their kings. Right, right, right. And I take it you're probably also familiar with the works of um, um, Zachariah Stitchin, who, who, to, who, did a, who was a, um, um, a Sumerian specialist, right? And his interpretations of the Sumerian myths? I, I am familiar with his work, and, you know, I read a lot of that stuff when I was a teenager when I first got started. Um, then I, I actually went and sort of looked at some of his source material and uh, some of the material that other people were using. So mm-hmm. uh, there were, I would say the best sources for this kind of stuff is to go back and look at some of the authors that wrote about Sumeria just when it was first really being discovered, when some of those tablets uh, were first being translated. Right. So a good person to look into is L.A. Waddell, if you look at his okay. stuff. Uh, he didn't believe in uh, space aliens, right. but he makes a really good um, argument that a lot of the important people in history um, are the same, actually, as some of these Sumerian gods, and that they match up with some right. of the biblical characters. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Okay, wonderful. So um, it's time for us to take a a little commercial break. When we come back, um, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, some of your books a little bit more and kind of the essences of them. um, And we'll talk about also your newest ones. So everybody, please stay tuned. You're listening to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
Hello, I'm JC. I'm Joan. And, and welcome, welcome to, to 21st Century Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. We bring education, insight, knowledge, awareness, trouble, craziness, and fun for you, the entrepreneur who's looking to build your business and your community. Listen every Friday from noon to 1 Eastern on talkradio.nyc. And you can tweet us at 21st CE Radio or Talk Alternative. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. We're talking with author Tracy Twyman today about her rather esoteric books. And actually, my engineer, Rob, had a good question. It's always good to define our terms. Uh, Tracy, what does esoteric really mean for people? You know, we use the term all the time, but people don't always uh, really define it. What's esoteric mean to you? Well, of course, it just means little known. You know, that's the literal tr- translation of it. Um, in common parlance, it's like the word occult, which means the same thing literally, but right. in common parlance, it's almost always attributed to um, the, I guess, spiritual techniques and symbolism used by uh, secret societies. And I guess that's a, you know, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I always, I always... narrow way of defining it, but there you go. Yeah, I always uh, heard it defined as sort of like hidden knowledge, but, you know, with the sort of context around something sort of spiritual in a way. Yeah, and but, you know, um, I think it gets thrown around a lot, too. I mean, yes. uh, a lot of things that are said to be esoteric aren't anymore because, you know, the information has gotten out. I mean, right. um, there's, there's so many things that people think, for instance, are Masonic secrets but they've been published so many times, you know, they're not secret anymore. I still get threatened by Freemasons who think that I'm one of them and I'm betraying my oath if I uh, say something about them in a book. Or I used to have a video that had some of the hand signals in it. Oh, really? And uh, everybody thought that I was betraying the esoteric secrets of the Freemasons. But, I mean, for one thing, it's actually exoteric now everyone knows it and for another thing i'm not a freemason so i don't have to keep the rules you know (laughs) right right exactly exactly okay um uh, yeah, uh, since you brought it up, I was going to ask you this question later, but I'll bring, ask you now. I mean, over the time that you've delved into all these topics, which are not, you know, always widely accepted and can really stir up a lot of emotions, has it been difficult for you? I mean, as you said, you, you, you've gotten threats about it, but I mean, on a sort of a day-to-day basis, I mean, does, do people give you a hard time? Do you get a lot of hate mail? Do you get a lot of people supporting you? I mean, how has it been for you over the years? I I get more supportive mail than hate mail and i probably get more just weird email than that of <laughs> people sending me their dreams and things like that but um you know mainly i guess the negative effect of doing any kind of research like this and you know any other author like me could tell you um, once you get known for writing this kind of stuff it's really difficult to say get a normal job or, mm. um, you know, get treated normally when you enter into a relationship. If someone can, you know, Google you and they find out that this is your, uh, this has been your career, yeah. uh, it sort of pigeonholes you into doing just that. So, um, you know, that's kind of a problem, I guess. And I think some of the darker subjects I've dealt with too kind of lead us. Um, a negative residue on me and kind of I, I wonder sometimes if I have bad luck because of it but mm. I'm not sure okay well hopefully we can shift some of that around for you uh, I'm wondering if, are more people kind of open or interested in these kind of topics these days especially since you know the da vinci code came out as a movie as a book and as a movie it seems like as you said before more of the stuff is out there in the public do you find the general public are more interested or more open about these top types of topics oh yeah i mean you know it used to be you would get laughed at for bringing up some of these things um 
conspiracies, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, you know, it's almost a lot of them are just a joke. You People laugh with you, you know, mm-hmm. for, just uh, for example, um, and this is this isn't uh, having to do with the occult, but like conspiracy theories. OK, okay. there's uh, memes going around the Internet now just making a joke about the fact you know, Hillary Clinton has a reputation for uh, putting out hits on people yeah. and killing them. Uh, there's jokes about 9-11 conspiracies. Hmm. And it's it's not like you have to be a conspiracy theorist to get these jokes. Everyone gets the jokes now because hmm. these ideas are so popular. Another one is like the Illuminati conspiracy theories. Hmm. Uh, they're so popular now that even, you know, the, the rap and pop musicians are referencing it in their songs. Yeah. It's, is everyone knows it. And there's an example of, you were talking about what's exoteric. People think they understand what's esoteric because they're picking up all of these, um, these phrases that they get from conspiracy videos on YouTube. And they tell you that uh, if someone, if there's like a horned animal inside a, a, a pop music video, that's a reference to Baphomet, for instance. Or mm. if someone does the AOK hand signal, that means they're part of the Illuminati. So I just, I think that's a bit silly. But anyway, yeah, it's very, very popular now. Another thing is if you look at children's literature and video games, there's occult stuff all over it now. Oh, really? I knew yeah, that just in... go, to the, go to the kids' section of the bookstore sometime. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I used to have uh, years ago a, a publishing, uh, a video publishing company, and we put out a Japanese animation for the U.S. market. And I know there was lots and lots of occult stuff in the Japanese animation. You know, and some of the stuff was more geared towards adults. Some was more geared towards qu- kids. But I was really quite surprised at the time. I mean, this was twenty years ago, um, or more. Uh, 25 years ago, mate. Was, uh, yeah, now about 20 years ago, and I was surprised at the time, like how in 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 that culture that it was it was so out there, even for kids. I guess now we we're catching up to the Japanese. I guess. Do you remember a, a show called Full Metal Alchemist? Because that's yes. a, uh, an anime show that I yes. thought had some of the most esoteric stuff in it. It was amazing. Oh yeah, it, yeah. Yes, yes, I know Phil Metal Alchemist. I know the publishing company that put that one out. That was a pretty popular one, but though though that came probably a little bit after my time when I'd already gotten out. But yeah, I, I, that one had a lot in it, and there were uh, there, there were so many I can't I can't even mention them now that I remembered. But anyway, so um, I would love to talk a little bit about your your books. Um, so uh, I know you have two books, one called Solomon's Treasure and another Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. Um, and I thought this, these might be a couple that my audience would particularly be interested in. Um, could you give us just a, a brief idea of what those two books are about? Sure, yeah. They're both about comparing the way that modern economics works, including the global monetary system, mm-hmm. to the way that alchemy is supposed to work to create lead, uh, to make uh, gold out of lead. Right. And uh, the, so the first book came out in 2005, um, and then 2010 I wrote the second one, um, which is, so the first one was Solomon's Treasure, the second one was Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. So I had the benefit at, with the second one, we, we had already experienced, you know, the credit crisis of 2008. So mm-hmm. that gave me sort of a, you know, even more of a perspective on things. But, um, yeah, both of them are about that topic, and it's not just, um, you know, making a general comparison, but it, which is obvious that, you know, in, in the modern monetary system, uh, paper is, you know, made into fictional gold and then functions as gold. Right. Then uh, the other thing is that you can multiply it uh, just the way that gold gets multiplied, allegedly, in the alchemical process. Uh, but in addition to this sort of obvious comparison, I went through the history of money and the history of the monetary system. Oh, and there have been several, but I mean, the, mm-hmm. you know, the history of money in general and then the history of the monetary system we have now and showed that there's symbols that are used for on the money itself. Oh, yeah. Uh, symbols for the money, like the dollar sign, the pound sign, um, other um, images, like oh, even the images on stocks and bonds, that um, that 
exemplify this alchemical symbolism and work with it, work with the magic of the system. Like, for instance, I decoded the back of the $1 bill. That is all about alchemy. And and I'm aware that the the two seals, you know, existed since uh, uh, the 1770s. But, uh, you know, the way that the dollar was was designed was meant to... um, give you a confidence in the system, confidence in the confidence trick that's going on with alchemy, with, uh, you know, with uh, the, the money being, you know, treated as gold. The reason why they put those symbols on the back of the $1 bill, the time that they did, it was in the 1930s. It was right after they had taken the dollar off of the gold standard. So they needed to do something to dress the dollar bill up to make it into, you know, something with its own power since it didn't have gold any backing it anymore. And so the symbols that they put on there uh, are meant to instill your faith in the dollar and in the United States as the issuer of it. Uh, and it, it's sort of supposed to hypnotize you in a way, I think. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, you're supposed to have a faith in that dollar the way, the way you would have faith in God. Mm, so I that's see. a bit of the magic there. Yeah, one thing um, that another I... thing that my my books show is that uh, so many of the people who've been involved in the crafting of monetary policy were alchemists themselves. And uh. for instance, going back to uh, Isaac Newton, who was a comptroller of the currency in England, uh, also was an alchemist. And uh. the person who purchased Isaac Newton's alchemical papers when they went on sale a few years back was uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes, the the uh, oh. economist. So that's oh. interesting. Wow, that is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I, I, something I just heard recently that I didn't know was that um, they they own. It's relatively recent that they put the words "In God We Trust" onto paper money. That that was something only in the last I want to say fifty years. That before that, it never said "In God We Trust." Well, I'll have to go back to my notes. Um, I remember I wrote about that at the time. But um, the whole thing is meant to uh, instill your faith in in the dollar itself and in, you know, the unity of uh, the people of America, of the country. So, you know... Uh, e pluribus unum. It's like um, every every time you do a transaction with your fellow Americans, you're you know uniting with them in a way. You're uh, you know putting your faith in that dollar and in the transaction and in the people as a whole. So right, right. Uh, you know that's part of the the magic that's going on with the one dollar bill itself. So the yeah. first book, Solomon's Treasure, was. All about, uh, you know, the dollar in particular. I mean, it goes back into history, but it really, you know, at the end of the book, we're sort of uh, summarizing how we got to where we are, you know, in in America with the type of money we have. The second book, uh, Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, I really got into this allegory, which I still think is very valid, about uh, the, the idea of the Saturnian Golden Age and how that links up with the way... Uh, modern econo- economics works now. Mm, okay. So cool. Uh, Saturn in alchemy r- represents and connects to the symbol of the negrito and the black sun. So um, the I- and that's also the uh, what they call prima materia. So the idea is that that's the um, the material that the universe was made from that existed before it got differentiated into all the different stuff that we have now. Mm. So that's the pre-creation material. And in alchemy, you're supposed to break everything down to that and then, you know, build it up again into whatever you want. All right, that's cool. how magic is supposed to work. Wonderful. Um, Wonderful. Oh, Tracy, oh, let's, yes. let's, we got to take a, a quick break. And, and what I'd like to, to, when we come back, talk a little bit about sort of the relevance of this now as we're moving to a more digital economy and kind of what's starting to happen now that people aren't using paper money as much and we're more like either charging cards or just PayPaling and it's all ones and zeros now and it's not even a hard currency, okay? So I want you to think about that and we'll be back in just a moment. You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
Hi, this is Rob Kay. And I'm Callie Alpert. And we're hosts of The Rob and Callie Show. Are you looking for a show that talks about real stuff like life, love, the pursuit of being yourself? Then you have come to the right place because we cover topics ranging from chivalry to gratitude to your relationship with money and everything in between. So listen to us on The Rob and Callie Show Tuesdays, 8 to 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on talkradio.myc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Welcome back to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity. So, Tracy, before we went to break, you were telling us all about uh, your two books, Solomon's Treasure, Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, and sort of this analogy of alchemy to modern-day currency, which is now, as you said, you know, we've taken off the gold standard. It's a fiat currency. It, it's no longer really real. It, it's just purely our faith in I mean, this this paper isn't really worth, you know, as they say, the money's not worth the paper it's printed on. Um, and, and there's no real uh, a backing, you know, there's no metal backing to this, this gold. But now we're sort of evolving even further away from it, where now everything's becoming more digital. What, what do you think the sort of the implications are, are of that with given these sort of alchemical history that we have to our currency? Well, it's the inevitable results of the path we've been on since the fiat currency was introduced. So that sort of broke down everyone's resistance to it and opened everyone's minds to the idea of money is simply credit. And now everyone accepts that perfectly. And the whole analogy of alchemy fits too, because, um, you know, Basically, the idea is that you can create basically as much money as you want to through this technique of multiplying it, multiplying debt, uh, multiplying credit. And so now, as you can, you've seen throughout the last few years, right. uh, the amount of money, uh, dollars that exist in the world is in the trillions of now. I've heard at one point there's like $600 trillion just worth of derivatives that, uh, wow. you know, are about are going to crash any day. Yeah. Um, so this is many times more, uh, you know, uh, units of money than there are, you know, people in the world to ever earn that much or spend that much. So it's kind of really become a magical concept that's almost completely uh, divorced from physical reality. Right, right. But I was saying in the second book about um, uh, how the, the system now compares to alchemy, and I was talking about Saturn in the Golden Age. Right. The... Uh, Roman idea of Saturn and the Golden Age, they said there was this age that preceded the age we're in now that was called the Golden Age when Saturn was the king and everything was perfect. Nobody had to work for a living. Food was abundant and available. There were no seasons. Uh, it was always just shun shunning, uh, sunny and beautiful. Right. But uh, what happened was um, there was this revolt from what ended up being uh, said in mythology to be the Olympian gods. Right. These are the children of Saturn. Right. And they took over, and uh, that's the world we're living in now. But the, the way that Saturn, as king, was able to maintain that peace and prosperity during that so-called golden age was because he was eating his children. Uh, there was a prophecy that he would be usurped by his own son. And so every time one of his children was born, he would tell his wife to come and give it to him to eat. Right. And, but his, one of them escaped, that was Zeus, and that's right. how uh, the, the revolution happened. But basically what I say is that that represents the same concept that we see now in the modern economic system because uh, our prosperity, what's left of it now, is being maintained by eating our children, essentially. We are taking right. the resources from the future and consuming them now. And that's what right. all this credit is based on. It seems like we're making money out of nothing, 
But just like in Full Metal Alchemist, you know, they always explain that there's a price to pay somewhere for the magical wonders that you create now. Uh, in the, in the, the show, Full Metal Alchemist, uh, they didn't find out until the end that the power that they were using to do all their ma- magical transformations was actually coming from another universe where every time someone died in a violent act, that power power was being released that was being sucked up and utilized by the magicians uh. in a parallel universe. And as crazy as that sounds, I think that's kind of what's happening. It may be beyond the scope of this interview to fully explain it, but I really do think that's what's happening to us right now. Uh, that we're we're that that sort of the energy that we're creating we're actually drawing from someplace else. Yes, and the simplest way to to visualize it right now is just we're, we're taking it from the future right and it's very literal in a way i mean people will not be born people will not live as long because of the money that's being taken away from the future right now so uh it's you know very serious actually how far it's gotten where we're not just taking stuff from you know generations three or four generations hence we're taking stuff from our own children right now, you know? Right, right. So um, I wonder, you tell me, I mean, what do you think about, you quoted from Abraham at the beginning mm-hmm. of this, uh, this show, and, you know, the Abraham viewpoint is one in which you can just somehow uh, always create as much of whatever you want without any sort of downside or price to pay. And I honestly don't know, um, you know, what the truth is. Well, I mean, obviously, if you look around the world today, like we're doing things in a very unsustainable way, right? We're we're, um, uh, stripping the earth of resources um, in an unsustainable way. And what people I see are starting to wake up to, it's like we can't just cut down all the forests because without trees, we're not going to have any oxygen to breathe. So you're starting to see more sustainable practices it's just beginning. It's still got a long way to go, but sustainable practices around, um, you know, tree farming and, uh, you know, how raising animals takes a huge amount of energy. More and more people are becoming vegetarian. Like there seems to be this, this shift in consciousness of understanding that, hey, this is the planet we're on right now. We need to be more sustainable and we need to do things in a different way. Um, I, though I think with, with Abraham's point, it, it's not so much that, you see, I sort of look at Abraham from sort of a deeper spiritual perspective that it's not really about getting the things. And you see, this is the the disservice I feel that the movie The Secret has done to this kind of material is it put it all about getting the big house and the car and, the, and, and you know, making lots of money and all that stuff. But if you really look at the Abraham material, lots of times Abraham says it's all just an excuse to help us to feel better, which raises our vibration. And that it's actually more about feeling good so that you do more good and, and you can come to the world in a better place rather than actually getting the thing the, the having the image of the thing is just an excuse mm-hmm. and so that's well, where i think people get sort of uh, messed up on is they think it's all about just getting the thing well i would say that the people that are in charge you know the elites that are making important financial decisions above us and you know i, I guess we can all take responsibility to a certain extent for what we do in our own lives. But right. I mean, you know, when the, the value of the money you're holding in your hand is being arbitrarily changed by someone else, then to a certain extent, this stuff at least seems like it's in somebody else's hands. Right. And those people don't seem to be, uh, they're certainly not motivated by the same worldview you're describing. They seem very concerned about keeping their stuff, even though they right. have so much of it, we can't possibly even fathom it. Right. But, um, I mean, their um, policies that they're pursuing right now are not, uh, they're very scarcity-based, I guess you could say. Absolutely. And we're talking about this gigantic bubble of of derivatives and debts that can never be paid that's just sitting there, uh, you know, clogging up the international commerce system right now. Right. Um, Well, all that exists because these people won't let that go. I mean, this is stuff that's just toxic. It's not helping anybody. No one's ever going to get paid those debts, but they won't let it go because 
their wealth is based entirely upon debt, upon someone else owing them money. Right. Now, I, it would be great if somehow we could transition from where we are now to uh, a situation where, yes, we can have commerce and we can have growth and uh, everyone can benefit somehow from it without that being necessarily tied to someone else owing you money or owing someone else money. Right. Because, you know, it's just the more, if, if that's what money is, and then we multiply it exponentially through these uh, magical alchemical techniques, then you're just multiplying misery and pain. So somehow we got to get out of this because, yeah, I, I believe, uh, I, I want to believe, I guess we'll say, in, in magic and in the idea that if we all have a better mindset and better intentions, somehow we can all make this work. Well, but it's you know, kind of let go of this idea, which the current system is based on, that you can't have gain without someone else's pain. That's entirely what it's based on. Right, right, which, which I, I totally disagree with. But, you know, the thing is, though, it's not what enables the system. It's not just the people at the top. They kind of put the set up the rules that way. But there are a whole bunch of people down the line that just follow suit because it benefits them. And nobody stops to ask the question, is there some real value here. I mean, that's what caused the whole subprime market collapse was, you know, these loans were getting traded, you know, 30 and 40 times over that went through many people's hands, not just one person, many people's hands. And nobody just stopped to look at it and go, hey, like, is this really worth it? Like, is the underlying asset, is, is there value there or not? And I think What's happening, and again, I'm, I'm looking at what I see as the flowering of consciousness around the world. I think there are two things kind of happening simultaneously, which I'm not saying that we won't necessarily go through some tough times before things get better. But first of all, we're more interconnected than ever before. And, and I believe that's on all levels. It's, it's socially, it's economically. Um, and, and, and even though there's tensions and there's, there's fightings, things are still much better than they've been for thousands of years. But we're much more interconnected, which means that you can't, we can't really afford to ha let a major country go like, uh, you know, down to poverty levels because it's going to drag everybody else with them. Uh, on the same token, as we're more connected and, and there are more people doing things, I see people waking up. I see young kids not willing to work for some of these financial institutions because they don't believe in what they stand for anymore. And that people are starting to find creative ways to be more self-sufficient and to come up with barter systems and, and other ways of exchanging, of coming up with exchange. And, and looking at money is really it's an energy exchange, not a debt. And that when people start taking that attitude, they start doing things differently. And I'm a big believer in, in, in Malcolm Gladwell's idea of like a tipping point that it's not like everybody on the planet has to become enlightened for things to change. We just have to get to a certain percentage that once we hit that percentage, that then sort of this wave of this new consciousness will just sort of sweep across the world and you won't be able to stop it. This is not well, to say I, that you won't have people resisting that until the end of their life. Of course you will. But it, it's about getting to that point. And the question is, do we get to that point before we make things so toxic that we can't live in our own world? Well, I, I don't know if we're going to get there in time. But the most promising thing, I think, actually, is the present generation is less invested in the system than their parents or grandparents. Right. Where you were describing how... Nobody, you know, down to almost the smallest level, the lowest, lowest level person, no one's willing to take a hit on their investments in order, you know, to do the reset that we need to have. So every time you talk about shutting down Social Security, of course, you know, people complain about that. Right. Uh, even if you lower interest rates, people whine, oh, you know, what about my return on my investment? What about my 401k? And then, you know, you can just go down the list of what, you know, relatively small investments people have compared to the big players, but still they're depending on them. They feel entitled to them, to the return on their investment. 
And, you know, you know, like I said, no one's willing to take a hit. And you certainly don't want to do it, you know, one one class at a time. Like, right. you don't want to say, oh, let's make people take a hit on Social Security or, uh, you know, this one class of investors. You know, right. like they're doing in so many of these countries where they have bail-ins and, uh, yeah. you know, there's just certain people that get, basically get money taken out of their bank accounts to uh, prop up the system. Yeah. You'd have You have to make everyone lose simultaneously all at once and reset in order for it to work. But I, I believe that, you know, recovery will be rapid compared to what we've been experiencing. If you think, yeah. think about it, I mean, since 2008, it's just been such a slow, painful death. And, you know, what could we have done if we had reset the system back then? We'd right. be four, six years into recovery by now, probably. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Okay, we have to take, I believe this is our last commercial break of the show, so please hold on, Tracy. We'll be right back after these messages, and then we're going to tie this all up together for our audience, okay? Mm-hmm. All right, everyone, please stay tuned. You're listening to The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network. Are you into comics, movies, and pop culture at large? What about music and TV? Then you're in for a treat. This is Michael Dolce, your host on TalkingAlternative.com. I've been professionally writing comic books, screenplays, and music articles for almost 15 years. Catch my show, Secrets of the Sire, at its new primetime slot, Wednesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and get the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. For more info, go to secretsofthesire.com. TalkingAlternative.com Welcome back. You're listening to the Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, and we've been talking this hour with Tracy Twyman, author of many, many books. Um, uh, we've been talking about a lot of books uh, around money and the idea of the economic system. I just uh, thought in this last segment, Tracy, maybe we talk a little bit about your latest book, Baphomet, The Temple Mystery Unveiled. What's that about? Oh, well, sure. That is the book ever the most complete ever written about the mystery of baphomet which is this idol that the knights templar were accused of worshiping and of course probably a lot of people have heard about it now because you know beyonce and rihanna supposedly (laughs) worship baphomet too now um but this is really the secret of alchemy baphomet connects to the secret of alchemy they described baphomet as and by they, I mean occultists, as representing the uh, the plastic material, as they call it. Plastic meaning, you know, it's sort of mold. Malleable, things. yeah. Uh-huh. That it's this sort of plastic material that pervades the universe, and when you put your will upon it as a magician, it conforms to your will. So this is sort of the uh, medium through which magic, magical transformations happen. That's what Baphomet represents. That's why Baphomet is revered and uh, observed, even in an encoded way, by so many um, Western occult societies, secret societies, is because he represents the secret of alchemy. So we wrote all about the history of this idea, not only from the Templars, but uh, the the, uh, ancestry of the idea going way back in ancient history. Uh, and uh you know you'll never you won't find another book about baphomet as thorough as ours um it connects to uh, uh esoteric uh, islam uh, sufism and things like that mm-hmm. um and then i think one of the most amazing things about it 
is that in the course of my research, I had a very important Latin text from the 1800s translated into English, which uh, most of the authors who write about Baphomet and the Templars refer to this book, but almost none of them have actually read it. So we had it translated. I was able to take uh, the pictures from this book and and provide the world with pristine photocopies of them, and they, they'd never been seen before. Oh, wow. And also I found uh, a bunch of items in the back catalog of the British Museum that are pertinent to this. These are all uh, alleged Templar artifacts, and they depict um, rituals, sex rituals, human and animal sacrifice rituals, and a lot of other bizarre rituals and things like that that are related to the... Templar secret secret doctrine, which really was uh, Ophite Gnosticism. So we explain all that Mm. in the book. And then the translation of this Latin text that I'm talking about, Mm. that's going to come out later this year also. So we have a new book coming out in in a couple of months probably. What are you going to call that one? Well, it's just, it's going to be the title of the original book, um, which is, it's the mystery of Baphomet revealed, but, um, you know, it was in Latin. So gotcha. it's very similar to my own book style, honestly. Uh, okay. Okay. So uh, we've talked a lot about secret societies, and and I take it you believe that secret societies are still active today, yes? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, a lot of the ones that people talk about I don't think are active. Mm-hmm. For instance, the Illuminati. I think I just use that term now as a catch-all term. It's just right. sort of a, a term like saying the man, you know, it's the establishment. It's just the Illuminati, the people who are in control of everything. But right, it's, right. the real Illuminati died in, uh, you know, the 1700s. Right. But, uh, you know, I think that um, you probably don't hear the names of some of the more influential ones. I mean, Bohemian Grove is sort of a, a club, you know, where people get together, uh, powerful people, and they, and they uh, um, do things to sort of, you know, just rub shoulders with each other but mm-hmm. i don't i don't know that there's really hardcore magic going on there right. i think that freemasons you know they still exist and i think that there's lots of different offshoots and different uh obscure rites of freemasonry and that's where you're going to find the real occult secret societies practicing magic mm. um but it's it's not always going to be blue lodge masonry or scottish rite it's you know a lot of times you have to look for the higher degrees Right. Uh, where people have gone through all those all right, those rites before, and then they go into some of these other uh, lesser-known degrees. And, and I think that's where you find that stuff. Right. And there are also modern-day mystery schools. I mean, there are sort of secret societies of, of white magic instead of black magic in common parlance. Yeah, well, yeah there's quite a lot of that. Um, I Again, you know, which ones are secret? You probably haven't heard of them unless you've right. been invited <laughs> to them. And then there's plenty of, uh, you know, exoteric ones that are open to the public, too. Right, right. What's your feeling? I mean, I guess you kind of said before about kind of where we're going. It it sounds like you're more pessimistic than optimistic about the future. Well, you know, you just kind of have to base um, things on your experience, right? And so far, I've seen the world and the country I live in deteriorate a great deal in my lifetime. Uh, So, you know, unless I see a ray of hope, I don't have a lot. But Mm. what you were describing before is probably my only source of hope, which is the uh, interconnectedness of people. And to a certain extent, I think that has really raised their awareness. I mean, a lot of people complain about millennials, I guess, you know, not having the same kind of values as their parents, maybe not being uh, as aware about certain things. But I would challenge and say that I think that kids today read a lot more than their parents did and about a a wider variety of things. Maybe, you know, they they don't study the same things as in-depth as their parents, but I think in general they're aware a lot more, and the potentiality is much higher. The potential of awareness and awakening is much higher, so at least there's that. Right, and it was also, as you mentioned earlier in the show, like they're not tied to the status quo like their parents are. They're not so invested in the way things are. They actually, most millennials want to change things because they don't like the way things are, so that actually can be a real force for change in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, 25% of them are unemployed, 
Uh, and then, you know, they don't have 401ks a lot of times. Yeah, they're not invested in the system. And almost all of them have already accepted as a foregone conclusion that they're never going to get Social Security. So, yes, this is the generation that can cut the strings because they don't need the system anymore. Right, exactly. You know, I, I met um, the other week, I met a young woman um, who was talking all about she wanted to get some farmland upstate, create a self-sustaining place where people who were like wanted to write books like you or artists or whatever had a place to go where they didn't have to pay an exorbitant amount of money to live but could create and come up with the next great novel and come up with you know works of art without having to worry about subsistence and all they'd have to do is you know maybe work on the farm and help to produce food and stuff but to try and make it like a self-sustaining commune and and not a commune but a self-sustaining community and it seems I'm meeting more and more young people who like that's their idea of of doing something more sustainable tracy this is, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry this is what uh, sir francis bacon envisioned happening to the united for the united states when he wrote the new atlantis before the colonies were even here so yeah that's hopefully what our destiny is going to be yeah yeah so tracy unfortunately we're, we're come to the end of our time together if people want to learn more about um your writings uh, uh purchase some of your books where can they go where can they find your work well you can find out all about me at tracytwyman.com i've got articles there links to all my books and then the books themselves are all on Amazon. Wonderful. And that's Tracy, spelled T-R-A-C-Y, Twyman, T-W-Y-M-A-N. Tracy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I, you, I enjoyed it. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. And if you ever make a trip out to New York City, please let me know. I would love to get together. Okay. Thanks. All right. And everybody, thank you for listening. It's been wonderful having a nice esoteric show for a change. And we will talk to you next week. You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Hello, I'm JC. I'm Joan. And, and welcome, welcome to, to 21st, 21st Century Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. We bring education, insight, knowledge, awareness, trouble, craziness, and fun. For you, the entrepreneur who's looking to build your business. And your community. Listen every Friday from noon to 1 Eastern on talkradio.nyc. And you can tweet us at 21st CE Radio or Talk Alternative. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you into comics, movies, and pop culture at large? What about music and TV? Then you're in for a treat. This is Michael Dolce, your host on talkingalternative.com. I've been professionally writing comic books, screenplays, and music articles for almost 15 years. Catch my show, Secrets of the Sire, at its new primetime slot, Wednesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and get the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. For more info, go to secretsofthesire.com. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Hi, this is Rob Kay. And I'm Callie Alpert. And we're hosts of The Rob and Callie Show. Are you looking for a show that talks about real stuff like life, love, the pursuit of being yourself? Then you have come to the right place because we cover topics ranging from chivalry to gratitude to your relationship with money and everything in between. So listen to us on The Rob and Callie Show, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on talkradio.myc. Are 
Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 